Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. Today, my guest is John Elkington, a world authority on corporate responsibility and sustainable capitalism, a best-selling author and a serial entrepreneur. He is known for his role as an ambassador for the future. His last book is Green Swans, and he is also the founding partner of Volans. Welcome, John. Thank you, Kai, and I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Uh, the last time I did an interview with you was in Dublin 2011 about conflict minerals and the role of the IT sector. I sort of remember that, but you've got a better memory than I have. <laughs> <laughs> we, but we have, we're working in the same field and have yeah. made sustainability to our lifetime goal. Um, we have in common is that we are both very optimistic. Yes. And uh, this, is a t- uh, this talk is um, f- our first uh, under a pandemic. And uh, mm-hmm. I will start to go into um, this uh, pandemic systemic shock. What did it expose? And how will you connect into the black swans and the needs of the green swans? Yes, I mean, I, I think people had been expecting a pandemic for quite a long time. Uh, some governments had set up uh, units to pro, you know, um, manage the process. Uh, the US even set, shut its own uh, unit down ahead of the uh, pandemic. So as a species, we sort of are sometimes incredibly intelligent and sometimes uh, borderline uh, idiotic. Uh, I think what the pandemic has exposed is uh, rather remarkable. I think it's been like a global X-ray uh, I think it's suddenly illuminated parts of the world that we simply don't pay very much attention to or don't see uh, normally. So, for example, I think wealth divides have become very much more obvious to people. Uh, the whole Black Lives Matter uh, campaign has sort of erupted in the middle uh, of all of this. You've got the uh, awareness increasingly of the differences in public health care provision. And then at the other end, you've got uh, issues around tax avoidance and tax havens. So, you know, the the corporate responsibility agenda has exploded during this uh, period. Um, But I think also people have become sensitive, probably for the first time in their lives quite often, to the fact that we live in a very fragile uh, system or set of uh, nested systems. And COVID-19 has uh, thrown up evidence of that. And so people are becoming very nervous about if that's COVID-19, what does the climate emergency look like? And what beyond that does, say, the biodiversity uh, emergency look like? So I think it's, it's been a big shock. Yeah. I see also in my uh, dialogues with people and, and also more and more reflection on, on what is the, what, what's happening and which are the road to the, to the future. Yeah. And um, when I look into your book, Green Swans, um, and you talk about uh, the, the VICT or Super VICT development, and, and yeah. why, has, why has the world become increasingly VICT or even Super VICT? Well, it was interesting. I was talking this morning to a professor in Cairo in Egypt, and um, we were discussing the way in which the world is becoming 
crowded with what Nassim Nicholas Taleb described as black swans back in 2007. And these are problems that come out of the blue. They're a complete surprise. They have an off-the-scale impact. Um, and then afterwards, we very often fail to properly understand what's just happened to us. So we set ourselves up to failure, to fail again. And, and, and to your question of why are there so many of them? And, and the book has a number of uh, wicked problems. So things like plastics in the ocean, uh, antibiotic resistance, um, obesity, chronic disease and diabetes, uh, space debris, uh, even before you get to what some people call a super wicked problem, which is uh, the climate uh, emergency. So what's interesting, though, is that um, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb himself has said that COVID-19 is not a black swan, which is a surprise to a lot of people who've been using that uh, label. Yes. Uh, but he's basically saying, we saw it coming. We should have known. We should have acted. We chose not to. Um, but my green swan idea is, in a way, um, it's riffs off uh, Taleb's idea and saying if, if most black swans take us exponentially where we don't want to go, where might we see evidence of trajectories or trends or technologies or solutions that could potentially take us exponentially where we do want to go? And so if we've got all of these wicked problems, all these things are going where really where we don't want them to go, what are the solutions that not, don't just address those problems incrementally, but have the potential to, uh, you know, to, to address them in, a, an, in a, an appropriate way, an exponential uh, way? So that's, what, that's where that um, came from. But uh, you know, in the conversation this morning, we were just agreeing that uh, wherever you look now, um, there are these black swans. And I think it's a symptom of the fragility of our global system doesn't mean it can't recover doesn't mean that we can't uh, regenerate it but at the moment as it's currently configured it's very vulnerable the problem is if you if you're uh, a bill gates and you're largely uh, talking about five years ago say um uh, epidemics or pandemics or, or health risks that's one thing because when they break loose you can begin move to address them with something like the the, the climate emergency the climate crisis i think you know, we, we're probably already too late. Uh, I think that the system is already moving at, at an accelerative curve in directions we really don't want it uh, to go. So I think as a herd animal, we choose not to listen until it's really, really uh, clear to us that we have to move. Question is, um, uh, <laughs> do we have time now to address the climate emergency or have we just simply left it too late? Uh, in some of the part of the book, you also talk about the paradigm shift. Yeah. And um, uh, can you, do you think, and, or do you believe that we are facing a paradigm shift in the consumer market? Well, it's interesting that choice of words, Kai, because um, a lot of people have used paradigm as, you know, it's a new paradigm in flavoring in a toothpaste or it's a new paradigm in bicycle wheels or whatever. But to me, like you, I think I read uh, Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, when I was 14. And that book came out in, I think, 1961, sometime like that. And that was the book that introduced the notion of the paradigm shift. And three times I've gone back to the book because I couldn't believe certain elements of what I thought I remembered from it. And one of those was uh, an experiment that was done in Hanover 
I think, uh, in the late 1800s, where they put distorting lenses on uh, people's eyes and left them on for weeks. I'm not going to go into the story, just simply to say that when a paradigm starts to shift, those experiments suggest that uh, for a lot of people, it's actually a pretty nauseating, sickening process because everything you took to be solid is not solid any longer. Everything you took to be fixed is not fixed any longer. And I actually think we're in one of those moments where an old order, you know, I, I was born in 1949. Uh, I've grown up in a, a world of the Bretton Woods summits, you know, um, that sort of uh, macroeconomic and geopolitical architecture. I think in many ways that's coming apart now. So a lot of people are looking for a V-shaped, a U-shaped, a W-shaped recovery. I think we'll see all of those, but I also think this is going to take a lot longer to clear, probably 12 to 15 years of history as any uh, guide. Uh, I, but I think that's necessary. And, and, and I keep saying, you know, I, I don't sound like an optimist sometimes, but I am. And I, I, my optimism is, is rooted in um, a reading of history, which suggests that only if the old order starts to die, can the new one really start to uh, struggle to its feet, which is, you know, it's a messy business, but I'm afraid probably that's where we are now. Normally we, we're coming into the discussion of business as usual and, yeah. and has been uh, in, in talk many years. And then uh, do you think we ever going to return to business as usual after, even after a vaccine? I think some elements of business as usual will resume simply because, you know, that is the way business uh, is done. But some of the contextual stuff, some of the stuff around what we sort of sometimes struggle to identify as the system, I think changes have started to happen at that sort of level. So people are starting to think about the value of things, of the natural environment, for example. So we start to see uh, the the fundamental master discipline of capitalism, economics, starting to shift at the edges initially, but I think that will accelerate um, over time. So I think, yes, of course, people will try and rebuild the order that they felt familiar with, they felt comfortable in operating, they knew what to expect from. But I just think it's, it's, it's probably uh, going to go well beyond uh, that. And, and, you know, one of my assumptions is that in these sorts of periods throughout our history, and they come along perhaps once every lifetime, uh, that tends right in the middle of them to be a major war. Now, I'm not predicting a third world war, but I'm saying that if, if, if our history is any guide, the likelihood is there will be a major conflict. And so and if people ask, you know, uh, who's it going to be between? And, and my answer is, um, is it's uncertain. I mean, it could be between America and China. It could be, you know, given just recent circumstances, between China and India. It it could be between India and Pakistan. It, there are so many possibilities, and with populist leaders in so many different parts of the world, uh, the risk is that much higher. And you just had Macron scrambling his navy off towards Turkey because of an incident with between Turkey and Greece. You know, so we're in a very, very uh, delicate um, period. And wars next time around won't be you know, massive ta tank battles in, in, in the Ukraine. They'll be things like cyber warfare, uh, drone warfare. You know, we saw the refinery in the Middle East 
uh, blown up by drones in a semi-deniable way. That's the way these things start, but then they accelerate. So um, I, I, I find it very difficult to sort of make a straight line projection from where we are now to where we uh, would need to be and say that's going to take us 10 to 15 years. I think this is going to be incredibly risky, ex incredibly dangerous, but actually probably the most exciting period in my entire working life because suddenly uh, if we know what we're doing we can drive change in a very different and very much more effective way mm -hmm. um, uh, as an optimist you you also of course looking into uh, the positive opportunity uh, yeah. opportunities uh, that uh, such a crisis has created where are they well, the point is that now they're everywhere. One of my favorite science fiction authors is William Gibson, who uh, is famous for having said something along the lines of, you know, the future's already here. It's just not uh, evenly distributed. And I always add yet to that. Um, a couple of years ago, back with the Business Council uh, for Sustainable Development, uh, we did a, a project looking at uh, the value of markets linked to the Sustainable Development Goals out to 2030 and by 2030 uh, you will have seen but um, the uh, forecast was that just on four out of 60 of uh, the sectors associated with the SDGs uh, the uh, annual uh, revenues potentially were around 12 trillion dollars a year now that was considered a conservative estimate so in a way, the, 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 these uh, opportunities are all, all around us. Uh, some people are beginning to move in those uh, directions. I, for example, uh, was on a call yesterday with a company I work with in Israel, uh, UBQ Materials, and what they're doing is taking all of the domestic refuse that streams down uh, hillsides in, in, in Israel and elsewhere in the Middle East, uh, and they're turning it into a, a useful, saleable uh, material. It happens to be a polymer. Some people might think we have too much uh, plastic uh, anyway. But this is a this is a polymer that is starting to be used by companies like uh, Daimler-Benz in their uh, their car um, structures. It's being used by McDonald's in their sort of serving trays and restaurants and so on. So I, you know, that's a rather unexpected thing to take, you know, this ghastly material and turning it into a um, the sort of uh, material that could be used in, in, in restaurants or uh, underneath our feet in cars or so on. But everywhere you look now, there are these examples. And, and, and just one, 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 I think, uh, really very striking example is the way in which renewable energy uh, costs have fallen, uh, particularly in the last four or five uh, years. You know, you've got a multi-factorial um, sort of uh, uh, fall in the price. So suddenly you've got the point where renewable energy, both solar and wind, uh, is becoming uh, cheaper than, than even in installed coal-fired coal uh, power stations. You project that forward uh, 15 to 20 years, and you've got a, a, a picture where uh, renewable energy isn't free, but it's radically cheaper than the alternative. So I think we're standing on the brink uh, of a technological uh, revolution, and from that will come revolutions in food and nutrition and agriculture and uh, energy and transportation, it, many things. So the simple answer to your question is, <laughs> uh, it's hard not to see them when you look out the window, but you've got to know what you're looking for, the opportunities. I think um, 
information technology at every step along the way from cuneiform tablets and, and, and the Babylonian world through the printing press to the personal computer and so on, um, and the sort of software industry that gave us Bill Gates, um, it's transformed our world. Uh, very often on the generational timescale, if you go back to Babylon or you go back to uh, the period of um, uh, Gutenberg and, and, and the printing press, but as we all know now, we're in a period where there's almost a hyper-accelerative curve in the IT technologies that we're exploiting. And, and in a way, there's a risk that that actually very slowly but drives us mad i mean it's it, it immerses in so much information we don't know what to do with it and so one of the elements of it that i'm absolutely fascinated by and have been to see companies like hp and uh, DeepMind before they were bought by google is artificial intelligence so it it, it, it again is an exponential uh, curve and I, at some level i feel the only way our species will be able to deal with and cope with and manage the world we're in the process of creating for ourselves is if we uh, develop the right sorts of artificial intelligence, almost sort of artificial wisdom, uh, if you like. Um, I think we're a very long way off that, partly because the technology is, is, is behind the curve that many people uh, picture it on. But it always happens that we over, we exaggerate the short-term effects wildly underestimate the longer term effects of a technology like that. But do you think that the governance issue has a role to play and play a more front runner in, in the society when we have new tools around us? Well, I think the combination of governance and government is incredibly important. And I think in some ways we're coming to the end of an era that Milton Friedman defined where he basically saw government as surplus uh, to requirements. He had that uh, saying that if you put the federal government of the United States in charge of the Sahara, we'd run out of sand in five years. And that was a very extreme ideological view. He was a very uh, brilliant man, I don't deny that. But I think COVID-19 has shown the, uh, the fallacy of thinking that we can do without government. The point is then, uh, it's got to be the right sort of government. And is the right sort of government for the 20th century uh, the right sort of government for uh, the 21st? And I don't think the answer is yes. I think we've actually got to reinvent uh, government. Now, in the past, that's tended to happen after civil wars or, or, or global wars. Uh, that, that's when you get these big jumps in governance and, and, and um, uh, politics. Hopefully this time we can do it uh, without that. But one of my very favorite social enterprises uh, in London, where uh, we both are, um, is apolitical. And, and as you probably know, they, they look at best practice across the political and government world, and then they pass on best practice to public servants. So I, I don't think we can just say government as it is should be slotted in and it'll work. I think government as it is has got to be changed and transformed, and then hopefully it'll work a lot better, but I think it's central. Yeah, maybe create new type of relationship between the, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, sort of people in, 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 in the society. And uh, with the IT technology, we, we have the opportunity to also to support this uh, development. But is it any reason that um, uh, one of my uh, priority issue has been talking about the lack of political leadership uh, in, in the development? 
but I don't see much of that uh, res uh, discussion in, in the book. Uh, I, I think there may, you may have thoughts about it, but um, it seems to that business, um, the business society has uh, developed their strategy much faster than the political leadership the last 20 years. Yeah, we have to be careful because uh, it's certainly true that leading companies, uh, and this is a very often a very small group of companies that keep popping up in different areas of the debate, have done some really thoughtful things, and I think often quite successfully. Uh, but the broad bulk of business is not yet moving in the same uh, direction, which is why you need uh, government action. What the book does talk about is the way in which um, what's coming at us, the disruption uh, of all of our uh, systems will throw up a very different uh, sort of and age of leader and that will be as true in business and in financial markets as it is in uh, politics and government um, and I think if from the point of view of the early 2030s we'll look back uh, at the people who were in leadership positions uh, now and say whatever happened to them because, I mean, Greta Thunberg for me is almost a, an ideal model of somebody who explodes from nowhere uh, and then sort of is suddenly talking to the UN, talking to the um, World Economic Forum. And we're in one of those extremely volatile moments where people with a very um, strong sense of identity and uh, agenda can have a quite disproportionate effect. But of course, that goes for good, bad, and ugly uh, <laughs> leadership. Uh, as well. We just happen to be very fortunate that a young Swedish girl has done what she's done. But again, I think, I think that's a, it, it, it's a sign of where uh, the polit political system uh, and, and dynamics are headed. Uh, what do you think about uh, the role the, the, the natural steps system thinking has for your thinking and development? Well, I think in a way we have a, a, a slightly parallel uh, development. So I was sort of coming up with a triple bottom line at the so, sort of same sort of time that uh, the natural step community was evolving. And a lot of respect from my side for what uh, the natural step people uh, were doing. Um, I think it's both sides had weaknesses which needed to be filled. I watched the natural step movement come out of Sweden into countries like my own country, the United Kingdom, into the United States, and so on. And it wasn't always an easy um, progression, that, that there was something about uh, Swedish uh, culture and Swedish politics which enabled um, uh, the natural step to flourish there, which it didn't always do quite so easily uh, elsewhere. But since then, we've had the FutureFit Foundation, FutureFit Benchmark, uh, approach. It's complicated, but I think it's it's like software it can be complicated, but uh, eventually it'll become simpler. So I think the the, the natural step lives on in 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 a number of different uh, ways, and you know I, I I I admire it because it's of its science base, and I think so often now, and particularly in today's world where you know we're surrounded by immersed in uh, false facts and so on, the scientific rigor, the scientific foundations of all of this. Uh, absolutely essential. If we don't have that, uh, we're really dreaming um, rather than constructing a, a new reality. Well, I think one of the things that the natural step did very usefully was to give people a sense that their worlds, their realities, their lives and livelihoods 
were dependent on systems which had a very different time scale to the ones that they were used to operating uh, within. And there's been a huge amount of conversation and discussion and debate over the years and decades about extending the timescales within which our societies and our economies and our businesses operate. Uh, and I think we've been singularly poor at really uh, making that uh, um, uh, a, a reality. Every so often a particular CEO will stand up and do something in favor of the long term, but it tends to be somebody like Paul Pullman at Unilever, who's just joined as CEO and therefore can't be thrown out. So he, he attacks hedge fund uh, investors or whatever. But in general, uh, people just keep their heads down and, 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 and don't want to uh, uh, attract too much attention or, or um, flack. But I think just the last 18 months have been extraordinary because you suddenly started to see major CEOs. I mean, Mark Benioff at Salesforce, for example, talking about capitalism being broken. You've seen Warren Buffett saying the same thing, but companies can't do this on their own. They've got to have the support of government. You had the Financial Times doing its wraparound uh, front cover early last year. And basically that you'll remember, it said capitalism, time for a reset. And now you're hearing that reset uh, language in, 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 in what uh, business people are saying, uh, what politicians are saying. Their difficulty is they've never done this before and they don't see any safe way uh, of doing it. So I think the natural step um, has set the preconditions for what a lot of what now needs uh, to happen. But yeah, we've got think, to, yeah, yeah. I think it's our, um, uh, for me. Uh, it was also that we, we we can learn from the mistake in the beginning. But at the, in the beginning, when I uh, met uh, CEOs as Leif Johansson at Electrolux, and he went into Volvo after that, and yes. IKEA, Zingvar uh, Kamprad, um, when they implement the, the four system condition in their business model, uh, things started to change. And, and, you know, this was nearly four decades ago. And well, it's, so it's, we it's had not, something. Yeah. yeah. But, but again, you think about Carl Henrik Robert, who I have enormous respect for what he did as a champion uh, of the natural step agenda. And you think about uh, somebody like Darwin. Darwin had to be dead for something like 40 years before people properly paid attention to what he was uh, saying. And I don't want you know, people to be dead, uh, nor do I want it to take quite so long. But there is something that takes an idea and separates it from an individual and over time become, makes it a little bit more uh, manageable. Uh, back to the conversation around COVID-19, I yeah. think we're in a point where all sorts of things that used to look um, impossible are suddenly becoming potentially possible and possibly even inevitable. Uh, and this is accelerative curve going on. So I think, you know, ideas that you and I have been involved and others like us have been involved now for 40, 50 years, uh, you know, it takes that sort of, you know, that's a, that's how long a paradigm uh, takes in order to, a paradigm shift to take uh, traction. I think with the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to see uh, progress uh, or at least change uh, off the scale greater than anything we've seen in our lifetimes to date. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, let us uh, go to uh, another topic issue, which um, uh, it's related to our pensions. Yes. Uh, so many of the investment and pension funds have parked great portion of the money, the money in stranded assets, like oil, yeah. 
airlines, fast fashion, and our aircraft manufacturers. They took a hit. And uh, many investors and employees saw some themselves losing their investment and jobs. Do you believe they ever have realized the true implication of stranded assets and how the future position is? Well, if, if they haven't, they need to be retired themselves instantaneously because you've had BP and you've had Shell both uh, declaring um, very substantial multi-multi-million um, billion uh, um, dollar stranded assets. And these are companies who for a very long time said to people like Carbon Tracker, no, you know, we're not going to have stranded assets. We're too intelligent. We can see all of this stuff coming. Well, COVID-19 is the proximate cause of a lot of that stuff. But the climate, climate emergency is going to do exactly the same thing. So to your question about retirement, I won't retire uh, unless I'm uh, forced to somehow. Um, but I have got a pension. And uh, last year, um, and because I've been freelance throughout my life, I've, I've, um, mm. my wife and I have invested that ourselves through um, uh, advisors and so on. And we got an independent advisor to come in and look at our portfolio last year. And we were horrified, even though we were invested through ethical and socially responsible investment funds, to see how close in our uh, investments were to some of these really problematic industries that you've listed, and uh, coincidentally to some of those potential stranded assets. So we stripped our money out of a lot of those things, and we put it into uh, the new economy. I have to say it took a very long time. It took about five or six months of really sustained effort to do that as best as we could. Now that should be incredibly much easier for anyone who wants to do that. We should all have the ability to steer our funds uh, in, in a way that we uh, see to be uh, suitable. Right. So I, I think the financial industry really has to have a very major shakeup. Uh, so if you were ahead of a pension fund, how would you address your strategy to the board? Well, I, I hope I would be uh, head of the Norwegian uh, uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund, something that with real muscle and scale, oh, I, I know what's going on um, there and I know the uh, CEO candidate, or at least I've met him once. Um, I think I would uh, pull in, and you know, it, it's very clear that the pension funds, the best of them will be doing this anyway, but they really need to be uh, getting to know people who are driving the new economy not just the comfortable, safe people that they know who run, uh, you know, the big battalions, the old companies, the traditional incumbent uh, companies, because in a period of disruption, uh, a lot of those people will disappear. It doesn't mean that they completely disappear. They'll be taken over or bits of them will be broken out and uh, acquired or whatever. But again, I think in 10 to 15 years, we'll look over, uh, out over a transformed uh, landscape where many of the safe investments uh, have just disappeared, the blue chips, um, uh, so-called. And I meant uh, 35 years ago, I started to talk about green chips. Um, and I think it's very hard sometimes to identify who those might be. I started tracking Elon Musk at Tesla 15 uh, years ago at a time when most people had never heard of him. Now, I wish I'd invested in him. I've been invested in Tesla in recent years. But um, now, he, he could so often have gone off the road, and he may still, well still do that, um, but what a rocket ride that has been, and in large part because he's a genius of a particular sort, and he's riding that wave of the new 
uh, emergent uh, economy. And in a way, that's what we've all got to do. And that's what even safe hands, pairs of hands, like the people running pension funds have got to learn how to do uh, as uh, well. Uh, I'm going to take this issue with me when I <laughs> with the, one of the first um, CEO of a, a pension fund in Sweden who addressed the climate issue uh, some years ago. Yes. Uh, and, he, and we're going to have a talk uh, around the role of the pension funds. And I, I think he did a pretty important work to put up these issues as a strategic advantage and also can, could show results of, of uh, some years of work. And um, I think a lot of pension funds now are um, discussing how are we going to use our money to yeah. save the, the growing generation of people who, who really need to know how their future will be. And that's uh, also, we come to one of my last questions for this yeah. book uh, is about uh, the young listener. And uh, uh, what do you want to say to the young listener of today's podcast? Um, well, I think I think our generation should probably say sorry. Um, uh, and the last thing I want to see our generation do, uh, the baby boomers in particular, is to say we tried, uh, we failed, now over to you, and we're going to have our retirements or whatever. Because I think younger people are now facing challenges and opportunities, of course, but challenges uh, on multiple different fronts in terms of employment and education and, and pensions and all sorts of different things simultaneously and also confusion just at a time like this when uh, the old certainties are evaporating it's very hard for younger people and you know at Valence and our, our young younger um, members of our team and I'm, I'm just acutely aware that they haven't had the experience of going through as in my case or your case the oil shocks or 9-11 or these different things this is this is new and this is on such a uh, scale so my message to younger people is that probably this is going to work out. Uh, it's not going to work out in you know, a very short order. And it's only going to work out if people don't get angry and violent, which I think is, is over time going to be a very real uh, risk among uh, younger people. It doesn't take many people to become angry for, for very major negative disruption to happen. But the generations have to learn how to work better together. I think that's absolutely... Uh, critical and that you know different age groups can bring very different levels of experience together and that can't just be in communities that has to be in national politics it has to be um in the sort of un or sort of global level and i think one way or another we've got to bring younger people not in as tokens not as um just to have them uh, sitting by the door and say you know we've got a young person over there but we've, we've got to bring younger people in at every level to prepare them for what's coming uh, next, to listen to them, but also to be in conversation with them. And actually, I, I, have, I find that incredible, incredibly interesting and great fun. So it's, 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 it, I'm not saying this because I, you know, it's, it's going to be a huge strain. I think it's because it's going to be, it's going to be essential, but it's going to be exciting as well. Uh, but thank you, John. And, uh, thank you, Kai. And, and just again, thank you for the invitation. It's a great comfort to know you're out there doing what you do. Uh, I hope it doesn't take too long before we can get together again and, and have a proper conversation. But in the meantime, yeah. uh, good luck and thanks very much indeed. And we maybe not need to go to Dublin. We can meet in London. <laughs> I like Dublin, but wherever it is, yeah. I look forward yeah. to it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Thank you very much.
Bye. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month. And each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.